You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy, your one-stop shop for all your medical media needs. Now, do you ever wonder what happens to all that out-of-date packaged food, all the day-old bread? Well, I often wonder, but I've got the wrong end of the stick here I'm being waved at. So put that last statement out of your mind. But there are agencies that swoop in, collect, cook and distribute good food that would otherwise be wasted. Today on the show, Rosie Kelly joins us. She's the volunteer manager for Fair Share, spelled F-A-R-E Share, not F-A-I-R Share. And get this, in 2015, so far, so far, Fair Share have cooked 753,638 meals for hundreds of charities. Isn't that just fantastic? So Rosie will be in to tell us about the sort of food they do cook, the sort of uh, programs they run, and particularly the volunteer program that she coordinates. <clears throat> Dr. Perry Natal is our expert consultant psychiatrist. So you're an expert, Perry. Last time she was on the show, she spoke about service cuts to mental health care for new mums, and wow, did that generate a lot of discussion. Today, Dr. Perry is going to be chatting with us about medication side effects and a huge company payout for those particular side effects. Stay tuned for this story. This is a corker of a story. Dr. Nick Carr has just returned from the most beautiful place on earth, but I'll let him tell you about that. I have envy disorder. Um, he's now back working at, uh, and leading, in fact, uh, one of Melbourne's busiest general practices. You know, ask him a question about anything, seriously, architecture, Egyptology, and he'll have an answer. And what's more, he's usually correct. Now, today on the show, Dr. Nick will be telling us about uh, the, the, the medicine and science of gluten intolerance and other things gut-related. Got that one right, Nick? Yep, good. And everybody's favourite epidemiologist, that's uh, EpiPen, um, will be in uh, with us taking a firm hand with soft targets and asking the hard questions. I had to get some metaphors in there. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Good morning, Mal. How are you? I'm, I'm not as good as you, but we'll get to your holiday in a minute, I think. Uh, EpiPen, you're sitting there without a microphone, so you're going to have to lean across. You're morning. sharing. Nice to have you. Rosie, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure. Pleasure. And uh, Dr. Perinatal. Perinatal. That's such a great name. Morning, Mal. <laughs> nice to see you. Hey, look, um, tell us, team, it has been Mental Health Week. Lots going on in the media. There's been lots of publicity. What kind of things have you been involved in? What have you heard about Mental Health Week-wise? I think it's really uh, sort of saturated the airwaves. Mm. Certainly when I've been um, driving around and listening to the radio, it's been all that people have been talking about. And even when you go to parties which involve normal people who aren't doctors, like last night. <laughs> people when, who aren't doctors, yeah, those guys. When I was at a housewarming, people were talking about it. So I think that's really great. I think that that's the way that we can reduce stigma for mental illness and not just the mental illness that most people feel more comfortable with these days, like <clears> depression <throat> and anxiety, but other kinds of mental illness that people are less commu- uh, less used to mm-hmm. um, thinking about, like schizophrenia or quite severe bipolar disorder. I think it's really great that people who have these conditions get the opportunity to talk openly about about how they feel. Do you know, I was, I was at, a, at a party yesterday too, not one doctor in sight, and the number of people talking about bipolar disorder, um, I mean, I, you wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought about this 10 years ago. It could just be with people who haven't experienced bipolar disorder or haven't, don't have it themselves, yet they were talking about stories of illness and so forth. It was just fantastic in the way that the stigma has been broken down. We're not there yet, but 
just such a palpable difference. You were talking, um, uh, Epi, as well about what was happening on Q&A this week. So um, I thought it was a fantastic show on Q&A and there were many people talking about um, depression and um, mental illness. And in particular, there was a woman called Louise... Louise Byrne, who I Byrne, think is a, a comedian and actor. Comedian and actor yeah. who had um, has manic depression, who was on lithium and really told her story and told explained her shakes and explained um, stress levels and how it can sort of flare up illnesses and trying to come off medication but really she's better on and it was it was just said with the most beautiful voice and story I was very impressed mm. there's a book by oh, oh, goodness the, the, the author's name escapes me she's a professor of psychiatry and she wrote this beautiful book called um, touched by fire I think it was called and she starts off the first chapter about and it, she's describes her uh, her manic phase and it just sounds horrendous and then it ends with um, her running into a security guard and he says who are you and she says well I'm the professor of psychiatry mm. and you know, and she describes how you know how even though she'd practiced this profession for such a long time the the significance of the illness was uh, was a, a very different feeling when you know once you're obviously experiencing it yourself was beautifully written. Mm. She's also written another book called An Unquiet Mind. An which Unquiet is an, Mind. Yeah, an autobiography, which is just it's the best description of uh, mania that I've ever read. Yeah. And from the insider's perspective, and she also talks about how she tries to come. And she's very successful. She's a mm. professor of psychology and psychiatry over in North America. In fact, the book I was talking about, you're right, was called. Um, Touched by Fire, I think, is she writes about uh, a, a creative uh, people who have created or creatives who who have been touched by mental illness. Yeah. That's great. But what do you remember her name? Oh, I'm trying to think hard about <laughs> is it. Is it Kay something? Uh, it. See, here I we go. We're so well read. We will, we will, we will <laughs> Google, Google this. It. Google it. I, I recommend it to my patients because it's actually really great. Um, she's a very clever woman Isn't and she's she? very successful. And I think that that's that's the thing that I want to communicate to people who suffer these yeah. conditions is that it doesn't have to hold you back yeah. from anything that you want to achieve as long as you get support. You know, Perry, I, I heard you say that um, it was good to hear from people who are actually experiencing these illnesses, and that's that's the thing I think we need more of. Mm. Um, there was a letter in the Age from someone suffering from schizophrenia saying, you know, we've done mood disorder to death. What about our voice? And the letter I was really struck by, uh, there was an autistic uh, gentleman who wrote about the box that was widely publicised as this terrible thing that had been put in to one of the special schools. And he said, from my perspective, as someone suffering from autism, he called himself an autist. He'd labelled himself with that. Mm. He said, this would be a good thing. It looks like exactly the sort of thing I would need when sensory overload is there. It's a safe place. It's not caged. It's got soundproofing. It's dark. That's what I need. Why don't you ask us about these things? So I think we need to hear more from the people who experience these, these diseases and less from people like myself. Well, I think that's really true. And not to keep talking about this particular topic because we do have a lot to talk about, but on the radio, um, actually yesterday, I was listening and they had... Um, somebody talking to a group of people who uh, had been hearing voices and so they had a support group with a facilitator and they talked very openly and very honestly about what it was like to have these experiences mm. throughout your life and how they'd learned to cope and how they'd tried to live their lives in spite of what seemed like pretty severe mm. mental illness. So, yeah, I think their perspectives. 
Very I'm just, you know, I'm just. It's it's reassuring that we have moved so far in the last ten years. Sure, there's there's much further to go, but just it, it stunned me. And I, you know, I was actually talking about this with a mate at this party yesterday. That you know, here are people who have no health background. You know, they were writers and, and you know video editors and so forth, and yet they they were discussing it very openly. It was fantastic. Kay Jamison is the name of the author. Thank you so much to all those people who texted me just now. Okay, I just want to share a personal story too, yeah. um, given that we're on the topic. So we was, I was talking to my 17-year-old son um, last night about depression and um, what had been in the news and on the paper, and I said, oh, I've had one of those illnesses, smacks. And he said, what happened, Mum? And I said, I had postnatal depression. And it did last for a significant amount of time, and it was horrible, but I got through it and I've got two beautiful children and I got it a little bit the second time. I had it after the birth of my first child and um, yeah, he was really touched that I told him about it and I think it's also how do you broach the subject yeah. with your children yeah. and I've certainly protected my kids. Well, I just didn't know how to give mm. them the words or the experience yeah. and I didn't want them to worry about me But and I'm through the other end of it yeah. but it was tough. It was really tough at the time. Having that conversation I can imagine, yeah. Look, um, there are loads of resources out there. If you... Did you just hear something move? Something moved. <laughs> um, loads of resources. Beyond Blue, fantastic resource. Use it all the time, beyondblue.org. Um, hop onto the internet. And, by the way, um, there's also a lifeline if you're uh, in a crisis, 131114131114. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. Okie dokie. Um, I'm going to interview Rosie Kelly and introduce her as well. Um, but I'd really like to thank Rosie very much for coming in today because she's extremely busy. She's got a huge commitment and she's got a year 12 son. So as we all know, we share year 12 with our children. So apart from that, I thought I would um, start by asking Rosie exactly what is fair share and what's her role. And really, over to you, Rosie. Thank you, Penny. Fair Share is a food charity. We're in Abbotsford, and I just need to clarify the spelling is F-A-R-E-S-H-A-R-E. So I know where you are. You're around the bend as you come around that road. We're I just, passed you. We're just near the brewery yeah. in Abbotsford off Victoria yeah. Street. And it's got all this graffiti on the... Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's uh, street art, yes. We've got street our, our uh, new kitchen, which we've been in for two years, is the largest charity kitchen in Australia. Uh, we make wow. around 5,000 meals a day uh, with the help of volunteers, a huge crew of different types of volunteers, uh, and those um, 5,000 meals a day are made from uh, food that is either donated or rescued. And, um, Mal, I just need to clarify that we don't use food that is out of date. That is uh, not what we do. We actually have to take food that's within use-by date. So use-by date is different to best-before date. Best-before is a bit more vague, but if it's used-by... <laughs> If it's so within use by date, it's okay to use. Yes, I have, I have a best before date. Okay, and um, we have, um, and we also have a lot of a very generous about a hundred organisations who donate food to us, and that's their way of supporting us. Let me just get this right: five thousand meals a day. Five thousand meals that a day. That is phenomenal. It is phenomenal, and it's uh, it's phenomenal because we are so well supported by our funders, people who provide us with financial support as well as food donations and other types of support. 
specifically in my role, it's the volunteers that make Fair Share tick. They're the engine room. Uh, they, they power the engine room of Fair Share, which is the kitchen in Abbotsford. We have 750 regular volunteers who come and do a weekly, fortnightly or once a month shift. We also have corporate volunteers who come in in groups and do like a team building three-hour shift together, a one-off. And we've got about uh, 80 corporates who come in and, and provide um, those work teams for so, us. So what does a volunteer actually do when they come into the kitchen? Chop veggies or...? They chop veggies. They, they're under the supervision of our qualified chefs, so we don't just let them loose. It's not like mm. Master Chef. We actually uh, have a very, very strict process which they follow. Uh-huh. We make uh, three different types of meals, and there are lots of different jobs that are required to make those meals. So chopping and dicing is certainly uh-huh. on the um, on the agenda every day. We make um, quiches and sausage rolls and veggie rolls. So there's assembly, there's um, rolling out pastry, lining quiche trays, and then at the other end after the meals are cooked, we're packing them into um, into boxes and chilling them. And so, how many volunteers would you have in that kitchen at one time? We could have uh, up to forty. We actually have two kitchens. Wow. We have a one main kitchen and then a, a second kitchen where we have our corporate groups and we also have a schools program so monday to thursday mornings we have students from years nine through to 12 come in with their teachers in groups of up to 25 and they come into the kitchen they do basically the same things as every other volunteer but we we obviously have to supervise them much more closely Um, why why would school kids like to come into your organization um, it's well for a lot of them. It's built into their. We've been doing it now for about three years. It's built into their curriculum, so it's it comes. It might be part of food technology. It might be part of uh, community service. Uh, it could be just a, a, a general program that they run. We often have a lot of year nine students in because year nine is that year when a lot of schools do a kind of an alternative program, or they offer their students a week or two weeks out. Um, so they they can't they do some pre work. So we've got a school's website that they um, they uh, look at. They check out a couple of videos. They read about fair share before they come in, and then uh, and then they come in and they do do the shift. And we talk to them about the value of um, food relief and sustainability and food waste and community service. And then after they leave the kitchen, I suppose it's dependent on each school, but. Uh, the teachers often will get them to do some post work. Uh, and as well as post work, they might also do some fundraising for us or they might do a food drive and they bring in pasta and rice or tinned foods or something like that. So it's it's not just an... Ex- we're trying to make it not just an excursion. It's actually part of their learning. Um, yep. So how do you coordinate all of that? Is, is there an, um, a computer system that's at your fingertips? There are... Um, well, I work with um, my colleague Diana, who runs our schools program. So she's a teacher, uh, and uh, and so she's worked in schools before, and she knows how schools tick. So she's she liaises with the schools and gets them organised. We 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 um, roster them on, obviously. Um, our schools program for next year is about three quarters booked out already. Um, the corporates uh, we book in, and uh, we're booked out for the rest of the year for corporate shifts. And I'll be opening bookings soon for corporate programs for next year, and our. Regular volunteers are on a, a regular roster, so they're rostered on, and um, that way we know sort of how many people are going to come in on each shift, uh, and we can keep it kind of controlled. And, and can a volunteer take annual leave? Uh, 
A volunteer can certainly take annual leave, and they often do. Um, our volunteers come from all different walks of life, but uh, many of them are retirees, and so they obviously have a lot of free time, and they do go away for extended leave. But we have people who work, who come in and do a shift in the evenings. We have uh, Saturday morning shifts as well. We have students. Um, and just a segue from um, mental, mental Health Week, what we were, you were speaking about before, we have people who uh, have admitted uh, to us that they've had mental health or they have mental health issues or difficulties dealing with other people, social phobias, things like that, and they're actually recommended to come and do volunteering work at Fair Share to assist them because they work in a team and it's very social, it's very interactive and it really helps them. It, it's a therapy for them to come in and volunteer once a week and assist with building their social skills. Is there a screening process to join or do you, what sort of... Um they register online and then we call them in for an, uh, um, an induction session or an orientation session, which is one hour. But it's really, we don't actually reference check or screen people. If, if it's not what people, if people start and they realise it's not what they wanted to do, then they just opt out and that's fine. Um, in five years that I've been with Fair Share, I think we've had to ask three volunteers to leave because it wasn't working for us. But generally speaking, people have a good understanding of what they're in for when they when they start. And we're in the incredibly fortunate position at the moment that we have a waiting list of 250 people. Check that out. Who, who want to come and volunteer at Fair Share, and most of it is word of mouth. So we don't advertise for volunteers. And I'm not trying to put people off who want to come and volunteer. Register online and we'll eventually um, be able to contact you and get you in. But a lot of community organisations struggle to get volunteers, and we're uh, in the very fortunate position that we don't. And I think it's because what we do is makes a lot of sense. It's easy. It's a three-hour shift. It's not difficult on your brain. You get to meet people. It's very social. And at the end of the shift, you can actually see the results of your efforts. You can actually see the meals coming out of the ovens and you can, and you can pack them away and you know that they're going to go to people mm. in need. And that's, that's really quite rewarding. And, Rosie, who are the lucky recipients of all this delicious food you're making? Well, we don't actually have any direct contact with the recipients of our meals because all of our meals go out to charities and they distribute them. So we distribute our meals to 350 charities across Melbourne and 200 in country Victoria. For example, could you name some of the charities? Uh, Sacred Heart Mission, Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, Salvation Army, um, uh, Osnum House... Uh, Salvos, uh, St Vinnie's, their soup vans. We give mm. the, the soup to St Vinnie's for their soup vans. So, um, The Father Bob vans? Do you, you yeah, we do. We do provide uh, yeah. meals to Father Bob's. And, and that's just come... They're, they're a new charity on yeah. board this year. And uh, uh, so... And they're, you know, they've been very, very um, grateful and appreciative of the meals that we've been able to provide them this year. Does it arrive frozen or, how, or how's the distribution done? Our pastry meals are chilled and then transported by truck to Food Bank in Yarraville and from there the charities pick them up. We also make the, the other kind of meal that we make are the, the casserole meals. So we're making curries and pastas and soups and stews and casseroles. And they're often packed with an accompaniment. So a pasta would be with a pasta sauce would be with a pasta, curry and rice, etc. So it's a complete meal. They're, they're um, packed 
vacuum sealed and then frozen for transportation, which means they can be kept frozen until they're needed to be used. Um, we do do some direct deliveries to charities, to some of the larger charities, but in the main, most of our meals head across to Food Bank every day. So they get a daily delivery and we're told that at Food Bank, most of those meals are already allocated to charities by the time they get there. So there's no stockpiling and it's very much... Um, it's very much delivering to an immediate need. What do you reckon people get out of this? I mean, your volunteers, do they, why would somebody volunteer? I think what, the, what they tell us they get out of it is they really enjoy the, um, the social mm. aspects of volunteering. They, they, it's the social connections they make with other people on their crews. They, you know, these are people who come from all different walks of life. They often meet very different people to them on their crews, and they might be with a crew of sort of 25 or 30 people. They share their life's experiences. You know, everyone, you know, they, they share their difficulties and their challenges and their joys, you know, their... their the deaths in their families, their marriages, their new, new babies being born, um, difficult times, health issues, those kinds of things. It's, it's non-judgmental. It's very welcoming. It's very inclusive. Everyone feels as though they're um, welcomed, and they are. Um, it's, as I said, it's not hard on your brain. You can actually get three hours of food preparation and, and meal preparation done. You see the results of your efforts and then you leave and then you come back and do it all again next week or next fortnight or next month. Fantastic. Rosie, I'm still fixated on that number, 5,000 meals a day. Mm. Do you feel as though that's plenty or do you think there's a lot of unmet needs still in the community that people just aren't getting enough well, it, we are one of many, many charities working in the food um, relief sector. It's difficult, I suppose, to know. We have grown uh, significantly over the last few years. We've only hit the 5,000 meals rate this year, um, but we've done that in response to the charities asking us to increase our meal production. So we're not, we haven't just grown because for the sake of growing, we're actually responding to an express need. Um, it's, you know, we have to keep checking with the charities how they're going. It's, it's difficult to know how many people are still out there meeting uh, who are in need of food relief. But what I'd have to say is that the we're hearing from the charities who are in direct contact with these people that then there's a new type of need um, or a new, new groups within the community who are uh, seeking help with food relief. So there's the traditional people who are living on the streets, people who are living in refuges, people with mental health issues or substance abuse issues who are always going to be in need of, of help, not just food relief but many other types of help. Um, over the last probably five or six years, there's a new group coming into these charities to seek help with food, and they're not coming in all the time. It's an occasional need, and we think, and we the charities are telling us that those people are people, families living at home, paying a mortgage, paying rent, kids going to school. On the face of it, everything looks like oh, it's okay, but in fact, they don't have any savings or or buffer to fall back on, and they're just living from one page to the next. If if someone has their hours cut at work or they get sick, or one of their kids gets sick, or they have to pay a bill. All of a sudden they have to start trading off what they can afford, and it might be that in a week they just don't have enough to put food on their table one night a week, so they have to go into their local Salvation Army Depot, pick up some food parcels, some fair share meals to come home to bring home and heat up. It's that kind of occasional need for food relief that's driving up demand for our meals. And 
So that's a new type of uh, group or groups within our community that traditionally haven't been uh, seekers of food relief. And just at the Alfred Hospital, they have a volunteer program and we have a volunteer working in our department. Um, And speaking to the woman that coordinates there, she said that people who have been in the business sector have made money and, you know, grinded people to do things, sell houses, whatever, and they want to now give back to the community. They feel that they've done enough of making money and it's time for their inner souls to do something of benefit. And um, I did look up some research because that's my job here um uh, and um, there's a paper done by a psychologist volunteering by older a- a- adults and risk of mortality. It was a big study mm. and it was uh, published in uh, the Psychology of Ageing in 2013. And th- one of the outcomes was that when they looked at um, older people and excluding or rationalising other health issues that might occur in older people like medical histories, age, ec- socioeconomic status, um, marital status, that volunteering, listen to this, volunteering appears to reduce your risk of death by 25%. So, and they attributed this to the helping behaviour, which leads to feelings of perceived usefulness and competence, as well as providing social integration and support. Thus, in turn, leads to positive emotions and a sense of reward, which improves the volunteer's ability to regulate stress. Isn't that fantastic? That is just gold. It's, it's such a win-win. Yeah. I, 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 Everything, everything. It's such a good, warm, fuzzy feeling listening to you, Rosie, and your organisation. I was so pleased when I heard you were coming on the show. In um, clinical practice, um, we used to uh, have a, a point plan, and uh, Nick uh, will, will know about this because he's been receipt of some of my letters. Uh, patients who'd come in with mental health disorder would say, look, you know, you're not working at the moment, perhaps some volunteer work would mm. be great. And the number of people that said, yeah, wow, that was great. And I got to meet people, I had this sense mm. of mastery, I saw what I could do. It was such a powerful thing um, to do. And what your research just brings to mind, Penny, is Erickson, who was, who was, a, a, who was, a, was, he was a psychologist, I think, um, in the 50s, who examined in American Indian tribes, and he, he kind of outlined the different stages of man, capital M-A-N. And one of the, the most important stages was generativity, this stage of once you have completed and built your family and you've nest in your home and contributed and, and made enough to support yourself, giving back is such an important thing in the psychology of mankind. It's, it's almost a need that we have to give back. And that's why I love the idea of volunteering. It's the sense of community. Everything you mentioned, Rosie, it's just... A win, 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 win. And that's, and that's reflected at Fair Share because when you ask people why they... I mean, people want to give back. That's why they come and volunteer with us. And, and yes, Penny, a lot of the people that... Uh, we, we certainly have a lot of people who are retired. They've had very successful careers. They live comfortable lives. And this is their way of, 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 of providing that con- that contribution back. And I think you were going to... Um, you discussed with me the breakdown of your volunteers, uh, age and sex, possibly, <laughs> the top of your head. <laughs> I, look, this is a guess, but I would say probably around 70 75% are women. And that's not surprising because I think volunteering is... Is something that is has a gender bias towards women. Um, in terms of age, I'm not exactly sure, but we have a fair proportion of our daytime crews who are retired people. Um, our evening crews, though, are mainly people in the workforce. So they yeah. they work during the day, and they you know they're doctors, lawyers, nurses, police officers, um, accountants, self-employed cooks, chefs, uh, as well as students. 
and uh, they come in and they do a fortnightly evening shift or a, or a Saturday morning shift uh, once a month, um, which is... Okay, I've just got one last thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I went onto your website, and I think, was there a volunteer that helped you with your website or the IT side of the... T- we have a number of volunteers who do pro bono, who give us their own pro bono support. So they help with expertise, graphic designers, electricians, web web assistants, um, lots of other types of support that we receive, as well as the kitchen, you know, the, the main kitchen. Okay, so going onto your website, this is my last comment um, for this section. Um could you explain this thing about Fair Share's recipe for love? Oh, that's the uh, singles night we, we've got coming up. Good Food Month, which is um, a Fairfax the uh, age. <laughs> Fantastic. It's great. RSVP. I didn't think I could love Fair Share more. No, RSVP, eat your heart out. That's RSVP are actually helping us with this uh, with this event. We've got two singles nights running in November oh, to coincide with Good Food Month. Good Food Month is running for the whole of November and we're the charity partner for the month, so we're very fortunate to have that status. Uh, we're running two singles nights in our kitchen on November the... Uh, let's see. Drum the roll. 20, uh, I think it's the 12th and the 26th. It's Thursday. Um, oh, I might be wrong there. We'll have to check out on the website. Uh, two um, evenings in the kitchen and people who are single can come in. They provide a donation, which comes to fair share and it's their opportunity to meet someone with shared values over the the kitchen benches it's like speed dating around the (laughs) kitchen benches but instead of you know meeting someone in a sleazy bar or a nightclub this is a real opportunity to meet someone doing something really valuable and helping fair share at the same time i I think you're going to get flooded with calls (laughs) (laughs) just from my mates (laughs) so check out the website it's www.fairshare.net.au f-a-r-e-s-h-a-r-e thanks so much for coming in, Rosie, and uh, stick with us because you can add some comments, I'm sure, for the next couple of segments. Three triple R. Rosie's just got one last little thing. Oh, sure, Rosie. I can say it at the end if you like. I just want to plug our yeah. uh, Upstream Challenge, which is a community walk. Yeah. We're talking about social connections and... Uh, but I can do that right at the end if, you, if it's no, easier. No, 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 don't, 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 don't. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Oh, well, we... Uh, so... I'll uh, say that Rosie is currently putting on some headphones so she can hear herself. This is very hard otherwise on radio. No, it is. Sounds like. It is. And now we're scrambling for the pamphlet. We no, we don't have it. Yes. Talk away. Go. Oh, it's me. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Just one thing I wanted to um, mention and, and promote to you is the Upstream Challenge, which is a 50k walk on November the 14th along the beautiful Yarra Trail. Fair Share is one of five charity recipients, and this is. We have to raise $1.8 million each year. We don't get any ongoing government funding. And so, as well as wonderful support we receive from the philanthropic and corporate sector and individuals and families, we do run fundraising events. So the singles night is certainly fantastic, but this, this walk is a great walk. Uh, it's 50Ks or 20Ks. 20Ks is much more achievable. It's from Melbourne to Donvale on the 14th of November 2015. It's a great opportunity to get out in the, in the outdoors and, um, and support fair share. Again, there's details on our website www.fairshare.net.au f-a-r-e-s-h-a-r-e thank you so much <laughs> well done fair r-e not i-r <laughs> dr nick we've eaten a bit into your time so i'm going to make i'm going to turn your dial and make you speak 10 percent faster i don't speak quickly i think that's good for radio so don't i will you? i will make the content pithy and exact how about that yes. with, speaking with alacrity yes 
So we're talking food, um, and I want to talk a little bit about gluten and celiac and that uh, that rather confusing thing because uh, you've probably had the same experience I have of uh, just this swarm of people these days who say, I can't have gluten, uh, an experience which we never really had 20 years ago. Um, celiac disease was a rarity when I was a medical student, and uh, in the last 20 years, the diagnosis rate of true celiac disease has increased fourfold. So we know that celiac disease is now being recognised much more commonly. About one in 70 Australians currently suffer from true celiac disease. But about one in 10, 10% of the whole Australian adult population identify themselves as being gluten intolerant. What does that mean? Well, and that's the question. So this is the very tricky nexus between true celiac disease, which is less common, um, and what people are thinking of as gluten intolerance, which is this 10% of the population. Now, when you take those gluten intolerant people and do true medical testing on them, only a handful, only around about five or six percent have a true medical intolerance to gluten. Um, so about 95 percent of the people who say they have gluten intolerance don't have a true medically proven intolerance. And I see Perry waving a hand furiously there. I just wanted to ask you a question. I mean, is it actually the case that it's sort of an imaginary phenomenon for these other people or is it just that we haven't figured out, you know, we haven't found the particular receptor that's abnormal in them? Thank you for the perfect segue into the next pithy segment. Um, Because uh, what we think is probably happening is when people remove gluten from their diet, they're also removing some of the other factors which in fact cause many of their symptoms. And what we focus on in a medical sense these days is this wonderful acronym you may have come across called FODMAPS. Get out your phones. I I love FODMAPS. And I have to look this up because I can never remember. It's fermentable oligo dye and monosaccharides and polyols. And this stands for some of the sugars that are in ordinary foods, uh, the vegetables, the grains, the nuts, that sort of thing. And what we now know, uh, and this is Melbourne Research, this is pioneered at Monash University by the dietetic department there. Um, They found that a lot of people who were getting symptoms um, which they were blaming on stress or gluten and so on are in fact getting their symptoms because they're sensitive to the amounts of these different fermentable sugars in their diet. So hang on, so FODMAPs... And FODMAP, it's a great... I mean, I know lots of people that are using the FODMAP diet and mm-hmm. they have said it has really changed their life. But what you, so the basic thesis is that people who say I'm gluten intolerant are actually FODMAP intolerant because the two go together? So the, uh, the protein gluten is contained in wheat and some other grains, but when you remove some of those grains and other products from your diet, you remove the FODMAP oh. product, which is more likely to be the cause of your problem. Oh. So the gluten sensitivity for many people may be a bit of a myth. It's just that by removing gluten, they're actually removing the other products, which in fact are the cause of their symptoms. Of course, going on a gluten-free diet is quite difficult mm-hmm. um, and it would be much nicer to be go on, to go on appropriate FODMAP diet, have your gluten um, and be able to eat ordinary bread and mm. ordinary pasta and that sort of stuff, but to avoid the FODMAP products which are causing your trouble. What sort of symptoms are we talking about? Nick? Many of these symptoms are uh, they're a bit vague and generalised, yeah. so we've got bloating, diarrhoea, constipation, tiredness, mm-hmm. uh, just feeling unwell. Mm-hmm. They can be uh, even uh, urinary-type symptoms mm-hmm. affecting the bladder mm-hmm. and um, uh, people often have just a sense of unwellness, but a lot of it is that gastrointestinal. It's 
the bloating, mm. diarrhea, uh, windiness, a mm. lot of gas. Mm. Yeah. And so what do you do in clinical practice when you see people who say, look, I'm, I've got these symptoms, what's the first step? Uh, one of the things that the clinical experience tells you is very hard to dissuade people from mm. their um, fixation on gluten. Um, I try and steer them towards, uh, and you've correctly mentioned the FODMAPs diet. There's a booklet that's been published. It's very cheap. It's about $11 a, a copy. And an app. But it's fourteen dollars to so download. I think it's one of the, the most successful medical apps. Yeah. So there's information on the web, on apps, in, in written form, about uh, what FODMAPs means, what the different food groups are that contain the different sugars, and I encourage people to go and do some home research to, uh, to try doing their own exclusion and challenge diets to see what they're sensitive to. What the difficult thing is, it's not about just one product; it's often about quantities. So people can tolerate a certain amount, say, of apple or pear. Uh, but when they put too much in the way of apple or pear together or have a lot of, say, cloudy apple juice, which has a lot of that same sugar, then they may get their symptom, but they may be able to have half an apple sliced without any problem at all. Uh, but you know what struck me, and maybe um, it is not that the, these kind of symptoms are more prevalent, it's just that people are more open about talking about them and uh, there are more... Uh, treatments available. But the number of people probably in the last 10 years who I've come across who, by the by, they don't know I'm a doctor because I try not to tell people, but they kind of just, they say, look, I can't have onions and I can't have pumpkin and I can't have this. And I say, well, what's the story? And they say, well, I've got this intolerance. And I just thought, gee, you know, 20 years ago, uh, I'd be hard pressed to say that I've met one person with that. Are you seeing a lot more of that? And what do you reckon the reasons are, if so? Um, we talk a lot about awareness of things, bringing people yeah. out of the woodwork, and I think that's right. I think people are asking their doctors a lot more these days because they, they don't feel they have to put up with yeah. these what are otherwise sort of grumbling, and they're not life-threatening symptoms, but mm. they're certainly lifestyle-threatening symptoms. Do you think um, medicos are asking more about um, how your bowel's going? Oh, you've got to be joking. We, we're terrified of it because it prolongs every consultation by another 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> I don't think the doctor's asking to all, but the patients... You're even, you're even supposed to have a look at least once a week at your poo and to see if it changes? Yes, we like a bit of stool gazing. That's always a very healthy thing. And, and the poo charts? It's a, it's a fascinating area. This, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of changes in the whole area of gastrointestinal medicine because we've recognised how the sugars affect guts. We're also now recognising how the the right bacteria are so important. Um, but oh, tell us about this, Nick, because I love this story. <laughs> I've read so much about it. Well, I, I'm going to take two versions. One of the fascinating study. It's, it's well known that uh, a lot of autoimmune diseases are less common in parts of Africa where tapeworm and hookworm infestations are more common. Uh, and people are very interested in why is this. And it's thought that some of these parasitic infections probably alter the immune response um, so that people get lower rates of autoimmune disease. It's been shown that if you take someone with celiac disease and infect them with hookworm, it changes the bacterial content of the intestine and in some people has made a difference to their celiac symptom. Really? So this is all related to this concept of what the good and bad bacteria yeah. are and what we should be doing. And the bit I think you were alluding to, Mal, was this gorgeous concept of what's called faecal transplant. It's called a transfusion. So we're... <laughs> 
And the group of people this has been used in most is a very nasty bacterial infection, a bowel overgrowth mm. infection called Clostridium difficile, which happens when people are sick, they're in hospital, they have lots of antibiotics. It's just back from Italy. I was going to say, it's, we, we don't <laughs> I've never heard it pronounced that uh, anyway, way. Clostridium difficile, difficile, <laughs> yeah. the hard C from, it, from difficile. Italy. Difficile. <laughs> sounds so much better. It sounds alluring, I kind of almost it? want to yeah. sound so awful, aren't I? However you want to pronounce it, uh, it's a a nasty, a difficult to treat infection yeah, with, yeah. Uh, and people often sick to begin with, and they have uh, um, this diarrhea and overflow. What they've shown is a very effective treatment is to get people to eat poo bacteria. They don't do it uh, just raw. Of course, it's put in a capsule. Mm. But fascinating stuff. There's a case of a, a woman in America who was given a fecal transplant from a relation who suffered from morbid obesity. Having had her faecal transplant, she then put on massive amounts of weight. And it's thought that we have to be very careful whose poo bacteria (laughs) you take because there are elements to the balance of the poo bacteria that then affect your general health. So they're talking now about... It's now this is such proven research. It's not a question of if, it's how we're going to do this, but that we should have poo banks. Well, there's a poo bank in the States. There's these entrepreneurial guys that set up a poo bank. So we need one here, but who's going to to volunteer? Well, that's Rosie to... What, to donate? (laughs) Some of the 250 (laughs) on the waiting list can perhaps... Happy to. to. (laughs) Uh, But we need some careful screening because uh, it's, it's, it's not just anyone who should be donating their poo bacteria. It's fascinating stuff. This is, this is going to revolutionise this aspect of I th- medicine. It's called, I, saw, I saw something in the journals recently. It's called... Um, it's, the, it's an organ. Your bi, What's your bionome? Your biotome. Your biotome is all the bacteria that inhabit you. Mm. It's considered an extra organ. And as you say, it is really going to revolutionise medicine. It's not just for celiac disease. It was also for inflammatory bowel disease, yep. Clostridium difficile, and a whole lot of other, as you say, autoimmune diseases. Yes. And we're just booking the surface of the whole thing. F- absolutely fascinating. Oh, Dr. Nick, we could talk about this for hours. Was that pithy enough for you? That was very pithy. In fact, you made your time. Exactly. Um, we are going to catch up next with Dr. Perry Natal. We're going to be talking about... No, in, fact, I, in fact, I will let you talk about this in a second, uh, Perry, because it is an absolutely fascinating socio-cultural uh, uh, I guess, uh, metaphor, not a metaphor, sociocultural examination of how we work. And it also, it's not just sociocultural, but biological as well. If I set the scene for you, there is drama, there are court cases, there's sex, there is sex. Stay with us. Three. Triple. <sighs> and if you were listening 30 seconds ago, you know that this is going to be a segment which in all aspects of the concept of biopsychosocial captures what it well, very well I can't even explain it you go ahead and explain it well, Perry. you did a beautiful intro just yeah. a couple of minutes ago so I will move on to just talk exactly about what I'm going to talk about um, and it is a little bit left field maybe for this particular radio show but I chose it because it Do you mean highbrow? <laughs> 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 not at all. Um, but it certainly has nothing to do with poo charts. It's, um, it's, it's probably part of the reason that I am interested in psychiatry and why I'm still working in it, which is all about the connection between who we are as people and, and our brains and whether or not we're just a collection of neuropeptides.
peptides mm. and electrical charge or if there's something more to us mm. as people. So anyway, I'll launch into the story. Mm. For the past 20 years or so, um, people have been prescribed a few different um, drugs which all have a very similar effect. Cobergoline, pergolide or pramipexol, which when used in combination with other medications mm. actually help control the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And they're also prescribed to help with restless leg syndrome. Oh, so these are drugs that people would use for Parkinson's disease? That's right. right they help to control the kind of the on-off symptoms that people mm -hmm. experience when they're freezing or having trouble initiating movement with mm -hmm. Parkinson's disease. Anyway, been used for quite a long time now, but about 10 years ago, people started talking about the side effects um, mm -hmm. associated with these drugs. In Canada and the US, there was um, quite a big study which showed that a very small number of people, maybe 9 out of 1,500, were experiencing a profound change in behaviour. Um, they had developed quite severe gambling addictions, which then caused, caused quite a lot of um, financial hardship mm. for these people. Anyway, it being the US, there were a couple of lawsuits against various different drug companies, and Eli Lilly actually very cleverly gave their patent to another company called Aspen Pharmaceuticals, which has now then been hit with all of the lawsuits um, related to these particular medications. Oh, so just just out of from a legal perspective, we should get uh, where where is our lawyer? He's off. Yes. So he's off sunning himself somewhere in Spain, I think. But so, what if you inherit? If you buy the patent, then you then inherit the liability. The for liability. That I think if you if you're I think the, the the principle, as far as I understand it, not being a lawyer, yeah. is that if you are aware that there is a potential risk to patients or of any kind of All effect right. of the drug, and you continue to supply it, oh, of course, then, then you're, you're liable. liable. Absolutely, yeah. that makes. And and not and the, the study that I was talking about was one of the first to um, become available, and there's been a little, quite a lot of emerging evidence since then that it's not just gambling that mm. um, that this causes. Actually, it causes a range of different compulsive behaviours mm. like overspending mm. and porn addictions mm. and um, actually compulsive eating. So mm. a whole range of different behaviours which have been triggered by by this drug. So you would uh, say, for example, not you, but a patient would have Parkinson's disease, they'd be given this drug and uh, all of a sudden their behaviour would change, they'd be, do something completely out of character, look at porn, take drugs, develop a gambling addiction. Yeah, that's right. That's I'm fairly just, significant. I'm really? just going to interrupt for a moment because we don't want all the people with Parkinson's yes. no, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so to be clear about the group of drugs, this yeah. isn't the regular cinemates and um, levodopa drugs, yeah. this is the cabergelines, pergolides, things like trade names of Cabeza um, and Permax, Cabalin, that sort of thing, which are used less commonly. And yes, this was less than 1% right. of, the, of the patients on this drug is what yeah, we're saying, yeah. but it was certainly yeah. a recognised phenomenon is what we're saying. Well, becoming more and more recognised yeah. over time and, yeah. and pretty serious consequences for these people. You know, obviously, as you yeah, understand, sure. these kinds of behaviours, yeah. they've got pretty dire downsides. So people would lose all their life savings or they would mm. be alienated from their families because of, you know, a porn addiction. Some people were placed on the sex offenders register just because of taking a medication mm. and, and they possibly didn't know it was caused by the medication so they weren't being monitored or? yeah that's right so doctors one of the reasons why this has been such a big deal is that um, doctors weren't informed about these side effects so they couldn't warn their patients um, and so it's a it's a very big deal not only in North America which is what I've been talking about up until now but also in Australia New Zealand there's been a couple of class actions taken quite recently and, just, uh, and just very quickly I have two patients who are elderly men with Parkinson's 
instance, who became hypersexualized when put on these drugs. Mm. And it was an appalling experience for both themselves and their partners. And it was a, such a profound response. So this is not just some sort of theoretical pie-in-the-eye or American-based problem. This is here now. It's real. Mm-hmm. And I think that the really sad thing about it is that these drugs were very effective. If they worked for people, they really did help them. They gave them back what felt like a normal life. And for people with quite severe progressive Parkinson's, that's a very big deal. Mm. So I just want to go very briefly into the science of it Mm -hmm. um, so we can understand what's going on. So all of these drugs target dopamine in the... That's a chemical in your brain? That's a neurotransmitter in the brain. um, And the reason that they're used in Parkinson's is because this part of the brain, the basal ganglia, is what's involved in initiating movement and smoothness of movement. And it's why people who are deficient in dopamine with Mm. Parkinson's disease often shuffle or freeze. However, dopamine doesn't just act in those areas of the brain. It's Mm. also involved in the reward centres and the pleasure pathways of the brain, which is why these people also sometimes got a bit of a rush when they were taking these medications. Mm. And the rush might be similar to the way you might feel if you were using cocaine or amphetamines, actually. Mm. So, um, and and that's how this particular effect of all of these associated compulsive behaviours was was really triggered, um, that unfortunately we don't have the kind of technology available just to target a specific part of the brain as yet. Um, when we give someone a medication, it crosses the blood-brain barrier and it increases dopamine everywhere. And so the brain is flooded with dopamine and people get these kinds of unanticipated side effects as a consequence. So how is it that so, so what you're saying is that in Parkinson's disease, there's a particular area of the brain that's deficient in dopamine. These drugs increase dopamine in the entire brain, including that part of the brain that's deficient, so Parkinson's gets better. So why is it that some people get these nasty side effects and other people don't? I think that is a question as yet unanswered by medical science. Um, I think maybe it's about the relative sensitivity of different parts of the brain, um, the receptor sites or the numbers of receptors on different parts of the brain to dopamine. Yeah. Um, but that's the. I think that's part of the problem is that the unpredictability of response. Yeah. And I think that that's also the, the strange paradox of this particular phenomenon is that these medications gave people back the freedom to be themselves mm. and to move with freedom, but in another way they really took away their freedom to decide about what they did with, with the time that they were given. So I think it was, a, it was a really interesting kind of paradox and a very sad kind of bargain that these people had to make with themselves. About. But doesn't it bring into, into light some of the philosophical aspects of who we are and what we are? Well, exactly. So, you know, I, it kind of brings me back to my own personal preoccupations with yeah. what makes people people yeah. um, and where character flaws and personality problems come from. Because I've never had um, a gambling urge at all. I've never mm. experienced it. My grandma was a great bingo fiend and, you know, you go along to race day with your friends and I've always done that and stood around in a hat and gotten very bored i can't see the appeal in making you know sure that that's your horse that runs a millisecond faster than somebody else's horse and so i've always felt a little bit superior for people to, to be quite honest to, be, <laughs> to people who feel those kinds of compulsions and i've always thought that you know something about me innately about me that made me you know immune to that but actually you know when when you hear about stories like this it makes you realize that there's so much beyond our control and the experience that people had when they were transformed from someone who had a lot of control over all aspects of their behaviour to suddenly not being able to mm. control themselves at all. I thought it was a really interesting... Well, what does that tell us? Does it tell us that we are slaves to our peptides? Does it tell us that there's a higher power? I mean, what does it tell us? How does it, how does it further our knowledge of what makes me, me? 
Well, I've never been a fan of the theory about high powers, but mm. that's you know <laughs> that's a whole okay. other discussion. Mm. But I, I mean, I suppose it makes me think that our neuropeptides are more powerful than we thought. And um, it certainly makes us aware that problems of addic- addictive behaviour, things like gambling, alcohol addiction and so on, um, hypersexualization, which we have often be thought of as character flaws and mm-hmm. someone's fault. Yes. When you see those problems developing in someone who's never had it before because they're given a drug and a chemical has switched them into this sort of behaviour, that says something very powerful about what underpins these behaviours. So, so in those situations, um, Dr Nick, what, ha- what was the treatment? I mean, did you stop therapy or... And, and when they ceased or whatever changed, did they go back to their normal sexual levels and functioning? Um, but these medications are not generally prescribed by us GPs. They're under specialist um, territory, so it's not really my job to stop or start them, but it certainly was my job to ring up a specialist and say, this is what's happening because the wife's just been in. And, and I had an extraordinary thing where um, she was coming home finding sex toys all over the house, a, a man where they hadn't had a sexual uh, relationship for 20 years. And um, it was awful for her and for him that this was... Cr- completely out of anyone's control. Um, once the medications are stopped, yes, the behaviour changes back. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, all of our training in psychiatry makes us, you know, hope that um, we're more than just a collection of uh, enzymes. But but I wonder, you know, particularly when hearing about this story and also when hearing about the poo transplants and how <laughs> profoundly they can change behaviour. Poos and peptides. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... It, it does, but it does bring into sharp relief what makes us us. Mm. And certainly in a pathological state, say when somebody is given a drug which significantly alters their neuropep, their, their peptides in their brain, mm. that can lead to a change of behaviour which is non-volitional, which they have no control over. And I, I think the debate comes to around well, what do we have control over and then, you know, in a, in a non-pathological state and then how does that make us us? Yeah, exactly. You know? and, and it's a whole spectrum of things, isn't it? Like, it's not ab- actually abnormal to gamble. It's mm. not a pathological thing in but itself. But when you don't have control over it, that's mm. when it becomes abnormal, pathological, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. that's right. But when does it, when, what's the point between really enjoying something and then not having any control over your behaviour in uh, relation uh, to that? Yeah. Particularly yeah. when you're talking about really, you know, basic, powerful urges that normal people have, yeah. you know. Is so that, bending, for example. Is that, yes, yes, we all have that sort of issue. But is, is that, is, and I'm asking the question, I don't know the answer. Is that the dividing line when you, when you can say, look, I have control over this pleasurable activity, be it whatever it is, whether it's drinking or whether it's um, sex or whether it's whatever, and I can control as compared to, no, this has control over me. Is that not the dividing line? Well, this is a good question. I'll throw it up into the panel. Isn't that always what we talk about in psychological health? The difference in good health and bad health mm. is whether the symptoms control me or whether I control yeah. the symptoms. Yeah. And I talk all the time with people, particularly around anxiety disorders, that there's no such thing as cure. It's only about whether or not the symptoms that you have change your behaviour, control you, or whether you have enough tools and uh, weapons to control the symptom and can get on with your life. So I'm a huge believer that it's very much that dividing line in every aspect. Uh, patients with s- suffering from schizophrenia may still have lots of symptoms, but if they can get on and enjoy their lives and do the things they want to do, if they are in control, then that is what matters. To me, it is absolutely the fundamental dividing line about good or less good health in psychological terms. Yeah. Also, I think, you know, in terms of, of those pleasurable activities, because I often wonder, you know, is this pleasure dictating, is this uh, for anything, you know, is this 
um, controlling me or am I controlling it? So it might be such a simple thing as watching too much TV, which you know, <laughs> yeah. could a bit, um, or, you know, alcohol or, you know, uh, in, in days gone by, a long time ago, smoking. And, and, and actually what made me stop smoking was I, I thought, no, hang on, this is controlling me. I'm not controlling it. And um, so I, I try and use that. I mean, it is a rhetorical question, but that's my personal way of, of dividing between pathological and non-pathological. Is it possible that they'd, um, you lose the insight that you don't know that you've got this? And that's hard too. You and so, it, yeah. if you, so if your yeah. example, Nick, you, you, the man or the wife coming home, did the husband know that he was being out of, you know, really unusual knew it but had no control yeah and that's the fascinating part the volition and the insight this is a great discussion and maybe we should start up another show radio philosophy and we'll talk about these particular aspects and there are so many things to talk about thank you so much for coming in dr perry nato we could go on for hours and hours and hours it's a great topic thank you also to rosie for correcting me about uh, out of date food and stuff and the great work that you're doing with fair share thank you Dr. EpiPen, wonderful segment, and Dr. Nick for telling us about poo, one of my favourite topics. You've been listening to Radiotherapy. We've got some scientists. They are champing at the bit. Look at those people over there in the studio next to us. Uh, so scientists from uh, Einstein and Gogo coming up right now, and uh, we, the team from Radiotherapy, will catch up with you next Sunday at 10. Cheers. Cheerio. <laughs>